So we previously talked about the power of natural intelligence and how we appear to be living in times where we don't value the essential processes that we need to engage our full natural intelligence. So now we want to talk about how did that happen and how does that play out in the world we're living in right now? I think what's useful about telling this right now is it really will help people ground it into seeing that this wasn't our nature to make this move. How we actually got here is explainable with real decisions we made as a culture, things we decided that we could undecide. We chose this for reasons, so we can just as well unchoose. So I think that's really important, and I think that's why I hope this telling is useful for people. And again, hopefully, if people are familiar with these concepts, I hope they're starting to see I'm not making up anything new. This entire podcast series is a synthesis. This is simply asking the question through the lens of natural intelligence, how do all these pieces come together? And what we're eventually driving towards, of course, is that what can we do about restoring it, including what we're eventually getting at to technology to help us restore it. So I'm not a historian, but I'm going to tell a very vanilla telling of some decisions that happened that point right at what we were talking about in the last episode, which is that the core processes of natural intelligence rely on things like imagination, counterfactual thinking, first-person perspective, our subjective experiences to inform our intuition that we bring to bear on our thinking, and that we're living in times when we are acting as if that weren't true, even though there's no way out, we're cornered, we have to admit we do actually come to know things through these mechanisms, even if we'd like to pretend that we are the opposite of that, rational, objective, unbiased, just according to models, truth, facts. This is a story we tell ourselves about how we come to know anything reliably, right? And then the the quiet secret that needs to stop being so quiet is that is not what's underneath how we come to know anything. There's no way around the fact that we're cornered into a human first-person perspective with a human mind capable of imagining things in a way that appears to be able to reveal when things don't add up reflect reality enough that we see the way forward, that we imagine the things that are real. What we'd be looking for, was there any time, ideally a smoking gun might look like, was there any time in history where someone said, by the way, stop everything you're doing and do not trust your imagination, do not trust your first person experience, and by all means, do not sit around imagining stuff that didn't actually happen. It's hard enough to keep track of what actually happened. That would be like the smoking gun of, was there any time in history where some group of people sat down and just said, here's the new rules of the game. This is how we're going to think now, and this is how you're all going to think now. And that is exactly what happened at the end of the Renaissance, at the start of the Enlightenment, is that they rounded up people that were thinking in imaginative ways, that were thinking in these different ways, and said, we have come to learn that we need to systematize our thinking. This is ridiculous, chaotic, delusional madness. We can't tell the difference between art and occult and theater and music and magic and spirituality and science. We can't pull any of these things apart. There's a promise here to make things intelligible in a way that's systematic, that we can count on, that'll battle back the chaos, that will end what appear to be fantastic ideas and snake oil and the occults and just a promise of a world where we could control things and predict things. And we delivered. That's what we got. That's what we got with the Enlightenment. We got science. We got systematic science. We were very successful in controlling things. We had an explosion of 
technologies, we got the industrial revolution, we got all that. We won with all that. We succeeded in that. We succeeded in being systematic. We succeeded in the kind of intelligence we're talking about that strive to remove all that, even if it was still happening behind the scenes. We hid what was happening behind the scenes. We leaned into the kind of things where the play of our subjective, the interplay of our imagination, the interplay of our counterfactual reasoning could be hidden. So in the domains where we could make things systematic, meaning that like your experience of the thing would be exactly like my experience of the thing. Like, how does that work? That thing must not interact with us because when we interact with things, natural intelligence takes over and that adapts to us and we adapt to it and we start co-evolving and that's the messiness of living things. But we're all going to have kind of the same experience of a toaster. And when your toaster breaks, we should all be able to understand what the pieces are in the same way and give them the same names. We should all be equally objectively able to fix the toaster. And there's no need for any kind of subjective perspective on that because it doesn't have much to add. The system doesn't adapt. It's not in a relationship to us. It's not necessary. It just gets in the way. If we bring our natural intelligence to these systems... We might innovate a new toaster, that's great. But most of the time, we want to make toast and we want our toaster to run. And for making toast and keeping our toasters running, 99.9% .9 of the time, for 99.999% of us, that would be a waste of time. There was no need. So there's an explosion of success, this kind of thinking. And to the extent that was successful, we became more and more suspicious, this framing the rest of our cognition, our natural intelligence as being disruptive and useless. In that world, that felt more and more true. So I had this large run. And so the people coming out of that training with that belief taught to think that way, basically would be like what today we'd call be very rational. A place for emotions weren't very useful when we were winning off of the creating of systems that didn't respond to our emotions and respond to our will. So we, we had also on top of it all, on top of all that, our emotions are exiled even though we're now realizing that they're an essential part of reasoning, of course, when we're trying to solve our own problems we care about, living systems have to rely on their feelings to reason about what they care about. But in this world of machines, our feelings were not useful. And so in this world, they became generally not useful for progress, for things ultimately for survival. So we were able to deliver all these wins socially. We were able to have control, harness power, all this with this type of intelligence. And it just grew in terms of our faith in it, our faith that good things would come from it because we were winning with it for so long. Now, it could be argued along with that winning, when we set up the rules of the game, that the way to arrive at truth is to cut off this natural intelligence so that we can work on the machines and build the machines. As we mentioned before, we also cut off our ability to verify a model of how the world works that's presented to us makes sense because the way for us to see if something makes sense is to ground it and to ground it in reality we need to use our natural intelligence and when our attention is trapped in our focused attention system is such that we go along with things we confabulate we can be told that things lead to other things that we know doesn't make sense but we can just say because this happened for this and then this then this that's the chain of causality even if common sense would say that's ridiculous we've lost common sense so we just go along with things. So it was a deal with the devil to get the control of the world in this way and have us start to elevate and believe in that ability. We gave up this ability to ground our common sense or ground our knowing into how the world actually works. And we became gullible 
basically became more vulnerable to other people being able to simply present information to us. And as long as we believe that they're credible, they have authority or whatever, we wouldn't be in a position to verify for ourselves. This, you see the picture painters, there's a, the faith in the system and their reflection of the system and they have the authority. They're the ones that have the knowledge because they have the objective knowledge. And that's what's important. That comes from outside us, not subjective. That's part of it. And why do you believe in objective knowledge? Because they're winning with technology, because they're winning with science, because they are able to create things for us that are powerful, that help us. So this is all becomes this movement towards that, that handing over of our natural intelligence. Then as part of that now, with this inability to question and this ability to accept simple models and this disconnection for how things don't add up, not be able to connect up our feelings, our deeper feelings and yearnings to what's happening. Now we are perfectly set up to be controlled simply by rewards and punishments. So what does that look like? It looks like mysterious forces, just like a rat pressing a lever and getting a pellet. It doesn't understand how does a lever make a pellet? Like, how does that work? A natural intelligence system would say, how does that work? I need to understand how that works. But a system that doesn't want to ground that into reality, meaning understand how something works, and just takes it at face value, it's good enough at the causality, the lever makes the pellet happen. That's how it works. What more do you want? That's the causality. I press the lever and I get the pellet. I do the work and I get the paycheck and I get my things. That's how it works. I follow the rules. I do my work. I get my money. I get my stuff. That's the causality of my life. We don't know how that works. We don't know how our life support system works. We don't think it matters for us to know how it works. So we live in a system where we can be embedded into simple causal systems like that, set up simple models of causality where we get our punishments and rewards without identifying the need to look past that and without the ability to look past that. And so now we've set up the perfect storm, which we now know is the criteria for creating a natural addict and someone whose behavior can be completely controlled. So slave. If you want to look for the smoking gun on that one, is there any story we're aware of where maybe modern industrial cultures thought, how do we control people to turn into slaves? And that is the story behind how we set up the American Psychological Association as funded by industrialists that said that we need people to sign up to do tedious work that they would never do on their own volition. How can we control them to do that? They specifically went overseas to go study models of behaviorism. And when they did this, the people in Europe studying this were saying, why are you only interested in this one small subfield of psychology? And it was because of this that they wanted to understand behaviorism. And so now we now know that behaviorism and the study of how these mechanisms work that train us and capture our attention in this way that the only way we could be captured and trained is what's behind the addictive applications, the addictive technology in our lives, that's behind ad campaigns, trying to convince us what we want and get underneath our motivations and tell us stories and narratives that get us to want things they want to sell. It's even down to the way we are trained in our education system which is more about the what and the rules 
and not the deeper understanding of the how. And so in a very real sense, we have been set up in Western civilization to have quite intentionally all these systems incentivized to undermine our natural intelligence as a way to exploit us. And if we didn't have this vulnerability to exploitation, if we could stop our natural intelligence from being undermined, there would be no fuel for maintaining these systems of exploitation. So this is not so different from what we know are the mechanisms behind brainwashing, false memories, occults, like the more extreme versions of these are the same mechanisms of how do you induce confabulation? How do you implant a model in someone else's mind and have them not question it and have them follow and believe it? If you were to look for another smoking gun to say, okay, what will we expect the signature of this to look like? We talked about that in the first episode and that you see that that's different across cultures and you see that it's stronger in Western industrialized cultures, the same sort of in the focus attention system. So all these things seem like they hold together as an accurate narrative, that this is what we're in. This is how we've been captured and trapped and we are currently being exploited. And as we mentioned previously, it's not a pleasant experience. And it's a source of not only psychological pain, but interpersonal conflict and ultimately an inability to create lives that make sense for us alone and together that are navigable. What you've been painting a picture of is the world we're living in right now. Everything we've been talking about can be used as an explanation for what we don't like about the world right now, the aspects of exploitation and control of the problems with truth, the problems with mental illness, touching on all these things through the lens of natural intelligence and this way that natural intelligence breaks down. Yes, and specifically, it feels as though we're all trapped in machines in a way. We're trapped in systems. We're trapped in these rigid, giant power structures that are exploiting us. Maybe for some of us it feels like it's a person, but then if we just step back a little bit, if we can, we start to see that they're part of a larger system and they're part of a larger system. And then if you replace the person, it doesn't change the system. If you replace all the people, it doesn't change the system. There might not have been any point where that was a conscious choice on an individual human person's behalf. So even the smoking guns we're talking about, if you're going to dig in deeper, you might say, oh, the system at the time made that the obvious choice. We're just trying to stay ahead of the next guy. We need workers. Just keep the doors open. How can we just get people to want to do this job? It might mean that this came from nefarious intentions, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. And I think at this point, we maybe have the sense that even if we all had the best intentions and didn't want to be doing this to each other, it feels as though these systems are taken over and maybe they emerged even without our understanding that they were an emergent property of this vulnerability, ultimately, that comes down to our lack of ability to recognize that our attention system has been hijacked. So even though it sounds like there's villains in this story, there may be no villains in this story, just like we complain about the corporate charter or politicians. Well, the system makes them that way. Shareholder interest makes them that way. The contracts makes them that way. What made the contracts that way? Well, the contracts that will succeed. If a system can exploit this vulnerability in humans, it'll have a competitive advantage. So in a sense, it's like we truly have been infected by 
mechanized systems that we are enslaved to. And I think that's why the metaphor or analogy of the Matrix movies fits so well. There's a recognition of that, even though it's not exactly like that. It is exactly that separation. Mechanical, unfeeling, unnatural systems. It feels like we are in service to those versus them being in service to us. So far, we've been painting this picture of how all this plays out in the world right now. And this is a problem, and we want to address it. We want to get to an assessment of what we've been doing, an assessment of if that's been working. And in order to do that, we need to explore how we're experiencing this more in our personal lives so we can know what it is that we're actually responding to, our response to that experience and what that looks like. And in theory, our response hasn't been working. So after we have this understanding and assessment of what our response has been, we're going to look at the constraints on what an ideal solution would look like with the promise that we have something new to try. We have a shot to do something about it, to do something effective.